Peter always talked about Mountain Gazette like it was this like fable almost like it was this fairy tale magazine that was irreverent and they cared about great literature. They cared about the content more than they cared about the advertising dollars. You know, they didn't appease advertisers. They found advertisers that believed in the content first. And that just doesn't exist in media anymore. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I'm pumped for today's episode. A legend of print media is rising from the dead, and we're going to hear all about it from the guy who's pulling it off. First, though, a reminder to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com to be first in line for everything coming out of the storm. Episode 20, Mike Rogie, owner and editor of Mountain Gazette. Where did you first get stoked about skiing? Off the hill, I mean. Once you caught the bug, where did you go to immerse yourself in it when you couldn't get to the mountain? For me, it was magazines. This was the 90s, kids. There was no internet, or at least no internet that was worth a damn. There was certainly no social media. So I went to magazines, and they were awesome. I learned how to ski from magazines. I learned about ski culture from magazines. And I learned all about the legendary mountains and chairlifts and runs from magazines. That's where I learned about the front four at Stowe and the single chair at Mad River Glen and about the long season at Killington. That era of magazine supremacy is long gone. Some of the magazines failed and the ones that remain are drastically slimmed down. They still do certain things very well, but the business model is broken and no one's really figured out how to turn that around. And what's filled that vacuum is a lot of social media garbage, frankly. So I was pumped when I heard that one of the legendary magazines was coming back and with a whole new business model. Mountain Gazette is not wholly a ski magazine, but it's got skiing in its soul. And so I knew we had to talk about it with the guy who was orchestrating the whole comeback. Let's do it. My guest today is the owner and editor of Mountain Gazette, which is company Verb Cabin purchased earlier this year. The magazine, which had two previous print runs, will return in late 2020. He is a journalist and film producer who is the author of the book, The World Stage Haiti, and has worked with Ski the East, Powder Magazine, Vice Sports, The Ski Journal, and various other outdoor and mainstream media papers, magazines, and websites. Mike Rogie is my guest. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Stuart. First of all, Mike, how have you been holding up these past four very strange months? Where are you based and what's life been like there? Yeah, I'm based in North Lake Tahoe, California. And, um, you know, we're, my wife and son and I are hanging in there as best we can, you know, everything's relatively normal in Lake Tahoe, you know, we're a little insulated from it. I mean, I can't imagine what you're going through back in New York. That's where we're both from originally. And, uh, we definitely miss it back there. I'd say that's probably been the hardest part of COVID is we just miss our families. Where are you from in New York? You from the city or the suburbs? Uh, my wife is from Westchester County, and I'm from the Queensbury, Lake George area. Nice. So what's your home mountain out there in Tahoe? Uh, I ski out of Alpine Meadows. Oh, nice. So so if I'm remembering this correctly, when the COVID shutdown happened in mid-March, you guys were coming out of a serious drought there in Tahoe, and you were about to get plastered with a massive storm. Then the whole mountain shuts down overnight. What was that like? Uh, well, it's funny. Like It was... Um, 
the ski areas around here did not shut down as quickly as I think some of us would have liked. Um, they stretched it out. They got one more big weekend and, you know, captured that revenue as best they could. And then we shut down and, uh, it was strange. It was really strange. I mean, the beginning of this, my wife, son and I actually got sick. Um, we don't know if it was COVID. Uh, we had all of the symptoms. Uh, my son had a hundred and two degree temperature and like, you know, you have a little one, so you can understand that. And yeah. So, I mean, while it was snowing and like our friends, thankfully were getting after it and having some fun. Um, we were just, just hanging in there and like, we, yeah, we spent a month. Um, thankfully we weren't all sick at the same time, but I'd say collectively we were sick for about five weeks. Um, but yeah, it's been certainly a strange winter. Um, I moved here after the big winter in 2011, which, uh, excuse me, 2010. Um, and so I moved here with, you know, bright eyes and a bushy tail. Sorry, my dog's in the background, uh, bright eyes and bushy tail, you know, ready to like ski pow and ski squaw and, you know, kind of live a Tahoe lifestyle that I've seen in ski movies my whole life. And then it didn't snow for five years. So I'm a little used to the idea that, you know, it doesn't snow in Lake Tahoe. So I wasn't too, I wasn't too disappointed with last winter. And the snow will be back, right? So, well, I'm glad your family made, made it through that. Okay. What was the mood like in Tahoe when that happened? Was there, was there some degree of denial? Was there some anger that the mountains were shut down or was the consensus kind of, yeah, this is the right thing to do. This is what we have to do to get this thing over with. I, I think if you asked anyone here now, they'd all agree the right thing to do is to shut down. But at the time, you know, it ties in pretty well with Mountain Gazette. When I read the letters to the editor from the 70s, like everyone in a mountain town thinks they know best. We think that we're high up on our perch and that we have the best uh, the best vantage point uh, to make these like big societal calls. Um, and, you know, I think all of us are looking back with a little bit of embarrassment about how we reacted. I mean, this is unprecedented. So, um, you know, for the most part, people played along. I mean, we've done really well here in Tahoe. I wish our County, uh, cared about us a little more than tourism dollars, but, um, you know, it is, it is what it is. And, you know, I'm certainly rooting for all of my friends who own small businesses here. Um, they're, they're going through the ringer right now and, and I'm, but I am optimistic they'll come out on the other side. All right. Well, let's get into Mountain Gazette here. I, I do want to talk about you picking up the magazine and what your vision is for it. But I think it's important that we start at the beginning. And Mountain Gazette has already had two print runs, one from the 1960s to 1979 under Mike Moore and Gaylord Gwennon. And then a second run starting in 2000 and ending around 2012 under M. John Fahey. Take us back here, Mike. Can you give us a brief history of the Mountain Gazette and help us understand what is its historic place been in the outdoor media landscape? Sure. So, um, you know, like you said, it was the it was the brainchild of Mike Moore, and Mike was a really talented editor, and I think he was able to attract um, a certain caliber of writer based on that that people didn't mind. Uh, the fact that this guy would read 10,000 word transcripts, you know, that were back then written on a typewriter and not only would he read them, he would publish them mostly unedited. And, um, I've, I've always related to that style a little bit. I've always thought that it was the editor's job to curate the magazine, but it was the writer's job to write. 
And so I've always tried to keep the voice of the writer in every piece I've ever edited. So that was what originally drew me to the Mountain Gazette. Um, and then John Fahey came along um, and he really like pushed a lot of like life into it. And I think he captured the essence of what a lot of people were feeling at the, you know, the dawn of the new century of like, okay, what is, you know, the landscape going to be like in mountain towns? People think that mountain towns have always been this hub for culture, but they weren't. I mean, it was a place where frankly dirtbags went to escape. No one wanted to live full time in a place where it snowed too much. And like, you know, the equipment didn't really match the terrain at that time. Now it's super easy to ski powder, but you had to be pretty dedicated to want to do that back in the day. And I think Fahey was the perfect person to remind us of what mountain towns were um, and that, you know, certainly they were tourist towns, but also they were mining towns. And he really found a way to capture, you know, what I refer to as like the old West of, of the fact that these places are wild and that anything can happen in a mountain town. And, uh, and he had a lot of fun with it too. And so my hope with Mountain Gazette is to bring back that 60s style of allowing writers to have their own voice and a little bit of the mischief from the Fahey years. So what's your personal relationship to the Mountain Gazette? I know that might seem like a weird question, but I have, I still have ski magazines that I bought back in the nineties. And, and I feel like I have a personal relationship with them, right? Because that's where I learned how to ski. And, and that's where I learned about ski culture and all about all the big name mountains around the country and around the world. So when did you first start reading Mountain Gazette? Uh, did you ever contribute to the magazine? What's, what's your, what's your relationship to that publication? So currently my relationship is that I'm the owner of it. But before that, uh, my relationship to Mountain Gazette was through an author named Peter Cray, who published some of the first excerpts of his book called The God of Skiing. And I was really captured by that book. And Peter always talked about Mountain Gazette like it was this like fable, almost like it was this fairy tale magazine that was irreverent and they cared about great literature. They cared about the content more than they cared about the advertising dollars. You know, they didn't appease advertisers. They found advertisers that believed in the content first. Um, and that just doesn't exist in media anymore. And so that's what attracted, uh, me to it originally. Um, I learned it was for sale when I was up in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, on a film trip um, with uh, with Grundens, which is one of our clients at Verb Cabin. So, so you learned it's for sale. I mean, take us through this, Mike. When did you did you get the idea right away that this is something you could pull off? You could buy this thing and bring it back to life. Uh, no, no. So, um, you know, I published a, a, a little blog post today about it in preparation for this podcast appearance. Is that when I was in Alaska in Dutch Harbor? Uh, it's on the Aleutian chain. It's pretty remote and people really only go out there to do one thing and that's make money, uh, king crab fishing. And so I had just spent almost a year putting together a team of investors to buy a magazine property. Um, and I wasn't successful with that. I have no problem admitting that I failed in my pursuit. There's no other way to put it. Um, and so I, kind of went my on my own way, knowing that I had Verb Cabin and that that was a successful business. 
but I had spent a year, Stuart, learning about business models of magazines and media companies from some media giants, from some folks from, you know, Viacom, History, uh, from, you know, Vice, Rolling Stone, MTV. Like, I went pretty deep and looked for folks that had had a lot of success and more importantly, a lot of failures in media at a big level so that I could learn vicariously through them about what the right model is for 2020. And I'd put all this work into it for a year. Deal didn't go through. I felt pretty defeated, but I still have a job to do with my other business. So I go up to Alaska and while I'm in Alaska, it's $30 a day to get on the internet because it literally is in the middle of nowhere. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. And so I'm getting on the internet and I get an email from a friend and he's like, call me, let's talk about the Mountain Gazette. And so we chat about Mountain Gazette for a little bit, about 45 minutes later, he's convinced me that not only is it for sale, it's available. Nobody wants it, but people wanted it. You know what I mean? Like people wanted it back. And I felt like I had, I already had a business plan that I crafted out for this other merger and I started thinking about it. I went to this bar across the street from our hotel called the Norwegian rat. And I said to my two friends that were sitting at the bar, I I think I'm going to try to buy this magazine called mountain Gazette. And from there, that was October of 2019. I purchased the magazine, uh, in January of this year across the street from outdoor retailer at 11 AM in the morning on the second day of the show. And the former owner, his name's Blake. He owns a company called Blue Ridge Outdoors, and they publish magazines like Elevation Outdoors, which is a Colorado title. They publish some titles back in the East Coast. We bought it like I was buying like an old truck off of them. Like we did a bill <laughs> of sale, and and then fifty boxes of magazines showed up in my office, and I got the URL transferred over, and it was go time. So this thing has bounced around quite a bit since Fahey shut it down back in 2012. Jason Blevins in his Colorado Sun article, he traced that ownership back from GSM Media to Scram Media to Active Interest Media to Summit Publishing, now to you and Verb Cabin. As you said, people wanted it, right? It's 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 a name that's out there and people are excited about this buzz about it. But why did it sit dormant for so long? Is it just waiting for the right model? I, I maybe it's hard to say. I mean, there um, unfortunately are hundreds, if not thousands, of beloved titles that have suffered the fate of you know Mountain Gazette, where they were shut down for economic reasons. You know, a lot of people scramble to put all of their print content online with no monetization model, and and they suffered this you know like i said they suffered that fate and they died um i don't think our business model works for everybody i think some people have a good business model i think some people have one where they're just trying to keep their heads above water and my goal for the gazette is uh you know i want this thing to be around for a long time i don't want to be the last editor of the mountain gazette i hope that i'm just the first in a long line of editors of mountain gazette that are to come and so, you know, I plan to sit in the editor's role for just a couple of years. You know, I'm 34 years old and I recognize that as I get older, my relevant opinion of mountain towns is going to skew older. And I don't want that. I think I need to find, you know, the next like hungry 
full of piss and vinegar editor, whoever she may be, and and you know put her in the seat and and go or or him, you know put them in the seat and let them, you know raise some hell. Well, you're starting from a really good place because this is Mountain Gazette. It's it's a really strong brand, and I I think the counterculture guys who wrote for the magazine in the '60s and '70s would cringe at that term, and and maybe you do too, Mike, but. But the truth is, in the, in the world we're living in today, brand equity is a thing, and the brand equity here is very strong. So, so what was the advantage here of buying into this existing brand that has this legacy that goes back decades, that's captured this story of the mountain town and the changing story of the mountain town over the decades, rather than if you were to just try to start something from scratch? Well, the obvious benefit is it's a legacy title. You know, we had George Sibley right for this title you know more recently Fahey wrote for the title Devin O'Neill who's an excellent excellent journalist out of Colorado got to start Brendan Leonard who runs the Instagram feed semi-rad which is shared all over the place I, I recently learned from that Blevins article that he got to start there and I, I think what I wanted in in you know your words the brand equity of it is like I didn't want to like go back and be like, wow, look at how cool we were. What I want to do is um, allow a new audience um, and a new group, a new generation of outdoor writers to actually build on that legacy. Um, it's, I remember when I first got published, you know, it was, I was in Free Skier magazine. At that time, a lot of athletes were writing for Free Skier. Um, you know, I was a big fan of Shea Williams uh, and his writing. And so I felt really cool adding to that canon. Um, you know, with Mount Gazette, you get to write, and I do mean anyone can write for Mount Gazette. This is a, this is a meritocracy. You write a great piece for us, and we will cons- for sure consider publishing it. Um, and you get to be a part of the legacy of Hunter S. Thompson and Edward Abbey, and and frankly, like that to me, I know as a young writer meant a lot to me, and I hope I can you know give that to some young writers now. So when you you said you got forty boxes of magazines when you bought this delivered to your house, so what, what does that mean to buy a publication? I mean, you you get all the rights. Did you just get everything in their storeroom, everything that existed that related to the title comes to you? What does this mean exactly? Uh, so it was a, it was a what's called an asset transfer, and so um, we the assets were transferred over from. Um, Blake's company over to Verb Cabin LLC. Um, we got boxes of old T-shirts, um, old magazines, old promos for like beer fest that they were sponsoring. A little bit of everything. Um, the URL came with it. All of the social media, um, an email list that folks hadn't been emailed in since 2012, which I actually sent an email to, and surprisingly, like had like a 68% open rate and people were like, Oh, we're so stoked you're back. We had no idea. Um, (laughs) that's awesome. And yeah. And so, I mean, it was, it was an asset transfer, you know, and then as far as like copyright and all of that, um, I've worked with several copyright lawyers just to ensure that like we owned the rights to, you know, for example, we're selling these old covers and we do, we own the copyright on those, um, for quite some time still. And, you know, I wanted to celebrate the heritage of the magazine while also like letting it be known that we're moving forward with it too. You know, it's not just going to be nostalgia play. Um, I understand people love 
this magazine and what it was. Um, what it will be will certainly have the spirit of the old magazine, but it'll also become its own thing. And you know, I, I constantly write on social media, on Twitter, that like it's not my magazine, it's yours. And I believe that. You know, the first week that we had our submission guidelines up, we had over 300 people sending queries of like it, and most of them said things like it, and I was Stuart I was shocked like I, I had no idea that's how people felt about it and and they're good they're personal that's what I love the most about it is they're they're really really personal stories that people feel like the only outlet they can share it with is the Mountain Gazette and I take that with a lot of pride and I have to be very careful with that because you know this might be the one good story someone has and I want to make sure that I treat it with the respect it deserves. So to help understand that legacy, you have these 40 boxes of back issues show up. How much time did you spend just pouring through those and and, and just kind of flipping through and, and seeing the surprises that were in there over these decades of stories? For a magazine nerd like me, I mean, not to make light of COVID, but going into a lockdown, you know, I the boxes showed up. Um, I felt better like two, three days after they showed up. I moved them into my house from breezeway and like next to our garage and started opening them up one by one and was just you know i'd put my son down for his nap and i would spend two hours just flipping through and i started sharing them on my instagram feed my personal instagram feed and people were like getting pissed at me because i wasn't posting the whole story i was just posting like a headline the first page and they're like no i started reading that i want to keep reading that and um (laughs) yeah i mean it was it was pretty serendipitous. When I bought the, the title in January, I told myself I was going to take uh, May, June, and July off from Verb Cabin. Um, you know, Verb Cabin's in great hands with Chris Siegel, who's our producer um, at Verb Cabin, and I felt really comfortable letting him take the reins. And I was going to take three months off and just study the title, but it turns out the world had other plans for me, and so I started in March, and I kind of flipped through it and read a story from the Gazette every night before I go to bed. So do you have a complete set now? Uh, I don't actually. We, uh, the intern, Gabby Dodd and I um, have gone through a bunch of them. We're missing right around like 19 or 20 issues, which we'll be posting on our site soon. And we'll be offering uh, a handsome bounty for people who can hunt them down. Nice. I'm sure you can get a complete set at some point. What, what was the last one that was published? Because they're numbered like comic books, right? So one through 100, whatever. What was the last one? We'll be coming back with issue 195. Okay, so you're going to continue the numbering. Yes, yes. We're going to continue the numbering. Like I said, we're, we're building something on the legacy of the, of the title. Nice. So, so Mountain Gazette, it, it's, it's not a ski magazine, right? I know this is a ski podcast, but, but it hasn't always necessarily been about skiing though. That's certainly a subject in the magazine, um, or, or even really about the mountains. It was always an alternative publication. Um, you know, you think of these sixties, like new journalism style, like Tom Wolf of that era. Uh, and it focused on anything that was kind of high energy, thoughtful, interesting. I'd imagine you intend to reset that to some degree, but lay this out for us, Mike, what is your editorial vision here? Uh, thanks for asking that. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, how are you going to bring it back? And what are you going to do about advertising and subscribers? Like, ultimately, the editorial is what we will live and die on. And I have found, you know, through research and just through 15 years of writing for different publications that 
I find that most most titles are are kind of on their on their heels, you know, and it's reactionary. And so I want to make sure that our editorial uh, doesn't focus on, you know, what you see everywhere else, which is gear reviews, which is um, pretty generic pro athlete interviews, um, which is, you know, a lot of pandering media, like depending on where the like national temperature is, like I find, you know, I, I, I don't know how to tell folks this, but like the world knows about climate change. You don't have to keep running outdoor stories telling people about a thing called climate change. I, I, I refer back to my friend Max Ritter who wrote for me at the Ski Journal who wrote a piece about Chamonix and how the terrain has changed because of climate change and the glacier receding and what that means uh, you know, for, for amateurs that want to go to Chamonix and go skiing who can't access this relatively easy terrain to access in the 90s because now you know you need an ice axe and a rope and a harness and a really damn good mountain guide and some training to get into these like relatively mellow slopes. And I found like that, that was a climate change story that really resonated with me because it made me think like, man, like this is, this is happening now. And I felt, I feel like for the editorial that I'm after is I want to know what's happening in mountain towns now and not just related to sports, but related to art and music um, you know, on the political side, I'm not looking to cover issues of the day. That's just not, we don't have the space to do that. We're a twice a year by, you know, or biannual title that's in large format. Um, but I do want to give our writers time. You know, I was just discussing with a potential contributor, the idea of her reporting on a story over the next two years, which I don't think a lot of titles have the ability to do. Um, I want to focus on art and music. I do find that art and music in mountain towns is really specific. It's really cool. And it, it changes from whether you're in Jackson or in the Adirondacks or in the Smoky Mountains, wherever you are. Um, and I find that like, if we just tell the truth about what's actually happening in mountain towns, we're going to be just fine. And I think people who live in mountain towns uh, will appreciate it because someone's finally listening to them and telling their story. And I think people who like to visit these places will find it's an authentic piece. You know, you're not going to find out what the top 10 hot tubs in Aspen are. Um, you know, Mount <laughs> Gazette was more like the top 10 mountain towns to get your ass kicked in. So we're going to focus on we're going to focus on that editorial. Right. So, so the old Mountain Gazette in its previous iterations, it would it would kind of surprise its readers. Right. Like they, they would do a whole issue on mountain town bars or run an essay on Disney or, or coyotes. So to what extent are you trying to maintain that element of surprise? And to what extent do you also have sort of a template to set things against just for your own sanity? Um, we, we have a format that we're going to follow. Um, and, you know, my, my philosophy on that is, you know, I've worked with some really talented art directors in my day, um, you know, at ski journal and at powder and, um, the best designers are the ones that hide the design. And so we want the photos and the words to, to jump out at you. Um, and I do want people to be surprised um, by what they find in their mailbox. Um, you know, we're not selling the back cover to an advertiser, so we're going to have a cover on the front and the back. Um, not many people oh, are nice. doing that. Um, you know, we're limiting the amount of advertising that we're allowing in there. This is a direct-to-consumer model, Stuart. So subscribers 
are directly responsible for the quality of content that will end up in here. We want to hear from them. And like, we have an email list just for subscribers where I've been speaking with them and they've been telling me what they want to see in their magazine. And I'm listening to them, you know, got who would have thought listening to your consumers was a good idea. Right. Um, (laughs) So I want to create, I want to create this, this nice circle, if you will, between our readers, the editorial team that I have here, um, and our contributors. And I think they're one and the same. All of our readers can be contributors. Uh, all of our contributors are obviously readers and we want to make sure that they feel like they're being represented in the magazine. So as you're looking at potential readers, you just mentioned the Adirondacks and I have to ask this because we're based in the Northeast here and, and that's where my primary audience is. The Mountain Gazette is always focused on the West and, and there's certainly no shortage of stories to tell out there, uh, but there are pretty strong cultures uh, winter cultures in both in the Northeast where I live and in the Midwest where I grew up. Um, but is your vision to keep this mostly focused out West or do you want to explore a little bit more of these mountain towns that maybe weren't part of the Mountain Gazette story before? We're going to explore uh, mountain towns across North America. Um, nice. Well, obviously we're based in the West, so we will have uh, some Western stories in there. And, and you know, our, a lot of our writers are based out here, but, you know, Derek Taylor at Powder Magazine took a chance on some kid from the Adirondacks to come write for Powder. You know, like I was a purely an East Coast writer. I wrote about street skiing and rail jams. You know, that was my focus and, and skiing on ice. And right. I also wrote about the good days. And I think that's the part that we can all learn from each other is that all the days out West aren't great and all the days back East aren't terrible. And I find that, you know, little newspapers like the Stowe Reporter in Stowe, Vermont, I get some of the best information I can find online from the Stowe Reporter. And I want to start mining those local newspapers for writers and giving them the opportunity that Derek gave me is here's a national audience. Here's an audience that's outside of your small mountain town bubble. We're just going to create a bigger bubble, Stuart, and the bubble is going to be mountain towns across North America. Yeah, I, I think the the folks out here will appreciate that. And the the ski media has always had a little bit of a Western bias. And I, I totally get that because the West is is special and they have the snow and the huge mountains and everything else. But uh, it, it's always nice to see any Northeast stories included. And, and I appreciate that perspective. Um, I also believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, I believe this is the first time Mountain Gazette will be run out of Tahoe. I believe it was more central Northern Rockies before how do you think that will change the perspective you bring to this? Um, you know, I, I think that the title will be a reflection of our writers. And I mean, the first mountain notes video series we put out was a surf edit from the lake because it gets really, really windy here in Tahoe and you can actually paddle out and surf on Lake Tahoe on a freshwater lake. It's It's very weird. It's very strange. And it's also right across the street from our office. So we felt like that was a good thing to lead with. Um, and we did get some comments like Mountain Gazette don't surf. You know, like I thought that was awesome. I actually wanted to print it on a hat. Um, but I, you know, we have Mountain Notes coming up with, you know, Region Hour, which we're going to release later this week. Uh, it'll probably be out the same day as this podcast on our site. And that, you know, he's a, he's a UVM grad. And uh, Strange Folk, his band headlines a, a festival every single summer at, except this one, unfortunately at J peak in Vermont. 
Um, we have a band out of the Adirondacks called Annie in the Water that just finished recording a live performance on a high peak. And they reached out to us and said, hey, we want to do this for you. Um, I don't think Tahoe will have as much of an effect on Mountain Gazette as I hope Mountain Gazette has an effect on Tahoe because I hope we can learn, again, vicariously through other mountain towns about you know, what works and doesn't work in Crested Butte or Durango or, you know, Boulder, Aspen. Um, I just, I think, I think that we can be the title that ties all of these mountain towns together where we can see our similarities and, and learn from our differences. It sounds like you're willing to experiment a little, listen to a lot of different voices. I, I want to go back to the writing here for a moment. In, a, in an article you have posted on the site currently written by Dick Dorworth, who's a Mountain Gazette legend, and, and wrote a, a pretty good book about skiing himself. Uh, he, he reminisced about how the original Gazette back in the 60s and 70s would publish manuscripts up to 100 pages long. And then under Fahey, they would sometimes run up to 25,000 words in a story. So as we look at uh, the, the traditional ski magazines, it seems like those feature stories have just gotten shorter and shorter over the past several years. And there are really very few places now, Mike, where you can find good long form ski journalism, which originally was kind of what got me into it back in the day, because it it made it an adventure for me. And I could kind of go along with someone else's adventure, even if I was sitting on my living room couch. So so how are you approaching the concept of feature stories as far as giving writers a lot of room to run? Um, Well, because we're twice a year, your deadline uh, is a lot further away than most. You know, if you're doing four issues a year, six issues, nine, whatever it may be, 10, 12, and, you know, not many, I don't think anyone's doing 12 anymore. Um, you know, you have deadlines, you have publishing web, web content every day. In some respects, people are doing podcasts every day. Um, you know, I find that, like, we're going to keep it really simple. I've worked for titles that complicate things and you run a bunch of events and they're public facing, they're sponsor facing, all that. I want to focus on the magazine, the magazine, the magazine, the magazine. Um, we do have a video series. It's very manageable to produce. We have seven episodes of it in the can. We're releasing two, uh, per month and we have 10 episodes recorded of a, we're calling it the mountain Gazette library podcast. Um, it's hosted by a good friend of mine from long Island. He's from out from your way. And he is, uh, he doesn't have a Long Island accent. He's actually a, a preacher and he has an incredibly booming voice, which is perfect for audio format. And we're going to be reading classic mountain Gazette stories. And the idea is that these is evergreen. If you didn't listen to it the day it came out, it's fine. You can listen to it two, three, four months from now, uh, when you're cooking dinner or you're making coffee in the morning or your kids asleep and you just need something to zone out to. And we're going to allow people to enjoy classic mountain Gazette stories in a format that makes sense today. Um, as far as the long form stuff. Yeah. I mean, I want a focused vision on pitches, but as long as your vision is focused, you can go long. It's okay. But you also have to know that, you know, brevity can be a writer's best friend. Um, I think that, the reason why long form stories were cut by a lot of editors, it, I'm not going to blame them. It's nobody's fault is that we got into a couple different types of stories and that's here's a super exotic place. One where like, we don't really describe it that well. Um, here are some rad people going to a rad place and doing rad things. 
which it doesn't really matter where it is, you know, like it, they, all the stories read the same. And we kind of got away from like the stories where there's a turn or a twist, you know, and, and the problem is that like as an outdoor journalist, like I have, I've been doing this for 15 years, Stuart. I only have about three stories that I think are actually worth publishing in the magazine. Whereas if I was still at any of my other titles, like I could go on a backcountry ski tour with some buddies and like could crank something out because there's a a bigger need for content. You need content all the time. Whereas our space is really precious. And so, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't start this magazine to start like the Mike Rogie book club. That's not what I did. Like I'm not doing that. I, I have three pieces that I hope to write for the magazine one day. But I'll also like send them out to some of our contributors and ask them like point blank, like, is this worthy? And if it's not, it's not, it's okay. But I want to keep the standard high. Um, and I want to make sure that this doesn't become another place where legacy writers get to put their work. Like I want to be a lot of new writers who will, I find new writers work a lot harder on pieces than some of the legacy writers because it, it matters more to them. It's not about a paycheck or paying the bills or, you know, keeping up with their status or whatever. It's, for the new writers, it's about getting that one great story they have in their life out into the world. And so those are the stories that we're hoping to publish. Yeah, I, I think they're also very plugged into what people want to hear now. And it, it, it's interesting when you think about the this long legacy of Mountain Gazette and it's two different eras uh, because it's the same title, but it's it, we live in a very different world, right? So you, you, you can't, even if you printed a hundred page story today, I, I don't know if, if anyone would read it, right? So it's just, Certainly not online. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so how certainly do you, how do you... not online. But I, but I do think like if you're getting a magazine twice a year and it's sitting, it's sitting there on your coffee table. I mean, I, I talk about the size of the magazine a lot, but I need to like really express this. Like, the, the when the magazine comes to you, we have to buy a special packaging for it because it doesn't fit in any priority mail stuff. It's 11 inches wide by 17 inches tall, so it's a foot. It's over a foot and a half tall. And when you open it, it's 22 inches wide. That's almost two feet. So like when you look at a photo of someone skiing up a gigantic peak from say like maybe a drone or whatever, that photo on 22 by 17 inches tall is going to look massive. The scale of that is not comprehensible on a computer screen, maybe on an iMac. But also, I don't know a lot of photo, you know, photographers that are sending around their 5K images that you can check out on iMac. And so this will, this will be some of the highest res printed photos in outdoor history um, and never before in this size. And it's actually, you know, we're, we keep talking about New York a lot. It's based off a model that was started by this company called Doubleday and Cartwright. And they publish a magazine called Victory Journal. And those guys were great. They came to me um, after I sent them an email and they opened up their playbook and said, look, here's how we've done it for 10 years. Here's what we've learned. Here's what we sucked at. Here's what we're great at. And they gave me this full playbook because they believe in print as a medium. And we believe in print as a medium. Uh, you know, we're not going to just be like, oh, okay, like buy a video project with us and like we'll throw in print. Like, no, print's the thing. And, you know, our subscribers are the thing. And we want to deliver a great product twice a year to our, to our people. And I think in, in that format, a 10,000 word story or 25,000 word story is incredible. I mean, you know, that we could turn that, if it's really popular, we could turn that into a book 
and we're an independent publisher. So, you know, we're not going to steal all the money from you. Yeah. I think for, for perspective, for people listening, a standard magazine size is more like eight by 10. So, so you're talking about more like a, a work of art almost here. Right. So I, I think that the one assumption that people have about not just ski media, but media in general is that it's headed unstoppably toward this all digital future, but but you're going in the opposite direction here and you're wagering that there's still room for a super premium print product. So ski magazines, usually they, they follow what I would call a discount magazine model, right? So you get a year or two for an almost nominal price, like 15, 20 bucks for, you know, six, 10 issues, whatever it is, but you're going in the opposite direction. A year is $60, the last price I saw on your site. Uh, so, so talk about your thinking behind that price point and, and why this sort of artwork as media model could be successful approach in this current environment. I mean, it works. It works. So, I mean, the old magazine model is you go to your advertiser and say, we print 80,000 copies of the magazine and it has what's called a pass rate of like two or three. And so let's say it's two. Therefore, every month, 160,000 people are interacting with that magazine and therefore your ad. But the truth is a lot of people don't make that many magazines. There are magazine audits. Um, you can find them normally towards the back. Um, it's usually called a publisher statement. And it's super small, fine print, so it's really hard to see, but they're required, in order to get better postage, they're required to print those. Um, I don't I don't need to do that model because why would I wanna print 80,000 copies of something that only a few thousand people have actually bought? It's crazy, you wouldn't do that in any other business. You would never make 5,000 hooded sweatshirts as a brand that you've only, you know you're only gonna sell 200 of. Like, who cares? I mean, if people want to reach that 80,000, 160,000 people, I mean, I just bought an ad, you know, on Instagram for a hundred dollars, I'm going to reach 55,000 people a day for the next three days. Like I don't need, I don't need a giant magazine for that. And so why do you need a magazine? The fact is you don't, you need, I think you need a different way for advertisers. I think you need a different way to present your brand to people. And everyone is used to seeing brands for like microseconds and everyone's like, that's it. That's it. If you just like, you know, consumers aren't stupid. People know what targeted advertising is. They're not dumb. So I think rather than treat your consumer or your reader as being an idiot and trying to trick them, I'd rather be like, look, this magazine is made possible because of these advertisers and this magazine has enough high quality content in it that you can hang out with it for four to six months. I don't expect anyone except true, true literary psychopaths of which I know a few in outdoor and they're great to, to dig through the mountain gazette in one sitting. Um, it's what I loved about victory journal. When I first got my hands on it, that magazine has been sitting in my house during the pandemic and I'd say once or twice a week I pull it out and I read one of their features or I go back and read another one of their features. It's truly a coffee table book and also it's the size that does matter because you can't you can't recycle it. You can't throw it away. It's too nice. It's perfect bound. It's printed on good paper and I just find that that is a more meaningful connection. I mean, you can get any song in the world, Stuart, right now on Apple Music or Spotify or Tidal 
people still buy vinyl. Now, vinyl doesn't sell as well as it used to, but there's artists that are selling twenty to 30,000 copies of their vinyl record, and I think that's badass. My friend has a band, and they didn't release a CD or a tape. They released a vinyl record, and it kicks ass. I have a vinyl player at home. It's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be. But for the people it is, they, they love it. And I think that's a more meaningful connection that you want to make with your words and your photos and your art. So it's going to be a really impressive print product. And, and I can see why why people would want these almost as a, a collector's item just set on their table. Like you said, look at them every now and again. At the same time, we're living in 2020. You're going to have a social presence. You're going to have a website. Talk about your vision here. About how are you going to balance that print's presence with the digital side and decide what goes where and what goes on both and how people can access all this different content. So we're not a digital a digital publisher. You will not see old Mountain Gazette stories um, on mountaingazette.com. Never going to happen. You will find them on the Mountain Gazette Library podcast because that is a more modern approach. Um, you will find them maybe in like a partnership with another media company that's looking to like, you know, highlight some of these older stories about their region. Um, you'll find it in video form digitally where we will highlight some snippets that aren't in the magazine. Um, and you know, we will be selling merchandise, you know, we're selling a t-shirt and a few stickers right now and they're selling surprisingly well. We have some more items going up. We just made a dog collar mountain Gazette used to run a mountain dog of the year contest. And so we thought to honor that legacy, we would we would honor that, you know, for all the dogs that like run away in mountain towns and don't come back and chase bears like my dog who's sitting right next to me. Uh, we'd honor them with a dog collar. Uh, we have pint glasses coming, and I think I think we just need to do a few things really well versus trying to be everything to everyone. Like we're not the New Yorker, we are not the Atlantic, we're not the New York Times, we're not Texas Monthly. Or Mountain Gazette, and we're gonna do things the way that makes sense to us, so that you're not compromising the quality of any of our offerings, whether they be products, print, or digital. So, so where are you at with all this, Mike? Are, are you are you deep into the first issue? Do you have a timeline of when we can expect to see it? Yeah. So the first issue will be released this fall. Um, we have four of our twelve features. Um, that are currently being written. Um, 12 features, wow. Yeah, 12 features, varying in length, um, varying in length for sure. Um, we aren't just going to be long form. We do have some shorter segments. Um, you know, people keep asking, are you going to republish old stuff? We are, but in a way that's uh, unique. Um, you know, we have a section that we're going to launch. I don't want to talk too much about like what's going to be in the first issue. I do want there to be some surprise, but... We have this section that we're going to put together that'll be two to four pages. Um, it's called Historically Bad Takes. And these are letters to the editor that were written in the 60s and the 70s that obviously proved to be wrong. Uh, folks writing in to say that, you know, this thing called coal is going to be the best renewable you know, energy source in the future. Or we have someone saying that there's no way in hell they'll be able to build a tram in Jackson. Impossible. It's not a feat that engineering could do. And, and, it's a reminder, you know, for all of us, you know, I, I sit, you know, here pretty high and mighty believing in what I believe in. It's built on 15 years of experience, but like also I can't take myself too seriously. Right. 
And I have to understand that I'm going to be wrong about stuff. And it's my job as a journalist and now the owner of a magazine to admit those faults and learn from them and move forward. You know, um, as the not taking yourself too seriously, uh, you know, is inspired by Shane McConkie and the McConkie Foundation's our nonprofit partner. They have been at Verb Cabin now for two years. And so 5% of our profits for Mountain Gazette and Verb Cabin are donated to the Shane McConkie Foundation. And it's just, oh, nice. a, you know, it's a, it's a, the right thing to do um, as a business in Tahoe. It's the right thing to do to give back to, you know, Shane McConkie, who gave a lot to me when I was a kid, in, inspiration-wise. I never got to meet him. but um, And also, I mean, just that partnership is a constant reminder that we can't take this too seriously. We have to have fun with it. And people, and if we have fun with it, then I think our readers will have fun with it, and and we'll we'll be successful. Any chance we'll see any old photos of McConkie sending it anywhere? Well, yeah, actually, we that's one of the the features that we're working on is um, we have access to a thousand photos from a great photographer who shot with Shane. Um, people didn't know that they shot together as much as they did, and we have a thousand photos. Um, that we have access to and the rights to, to publish. So we'll, in the first issue, this is the only feature actually we've teased. There will be, um, a selection of unpublished, never before seen Shane McConkie photos, um, that I'm going to go take a look at with, uh, hopefully with, with Shane's, uh, wife, Sherry and daughter, Ayla. That's phenomenal. So what's your approach to, to, to running this whole thing, Mike? Because the the old model was, you know, you, you get an office, you have a staff, uh, you have full-time writers. How are you approaching this as far as, is it mostly, are most of your pieces written by freelancers, contributors? Um, do you have some full-time folks? Like what, what's that whole, what's your whole business model look like? Uh, so, so Verb Cabin is a contracting business and we're approaching Mountain Gazette in the same way. Um, you know, I, I haven't come to terms yet, but we do have a, a photo editor um, we do have an art director and they will be on a contract basis. Um, I'm really excited about our photo editor. Um, she is super talented. Um, and yeah, I can't. So I, I mentioned it to a writer the other day and they're like, how'd you get her? And she just, she believes in the vision. So, um, but it's not my place to announce that yet. It, I want her to be able to speak for herself on that, but, um, we'll be running a contract business. Um, we do have, uh, full-time producer. Um, and I'm, I'm also full-time and my hope is to bring on maybe two or three more people. And, um, I want to keep my staff really small, um, so that, you know, as we grow, we can afford to continue to pay them well. It does not, um, (laughs) it, it does not bode well to have an entry level media position in a mountain town. So we have to make sure that we're compensating our employees at verb cabin and mountain gazette really well. And then we will have, um, standard rates for photos and video. And I stand by like our day rates are better than a lot of major production companies and our photo and word rates will be better than a lot of digital outlets and, and quite a few print magazines. So, um, you know, we're not, we're not, a, we're not a big title, you know, we're two issues a year, so it doesn't require a full-time staff. Um, so we want to keep, keep it light and tight and be able to be nimble. And, um, you know, on the podcast side, Jared Haynes, who is the host of Mount Gazette library. Um, he's been our 
music supervisor at Verb Cabin for all seven years. He was the first person we started working with and paying. He'll be he'll be heading up our our podcast department and just ensuring quality and making sure like everyone has custom intros and that audio is, is audio levels are correct. And you know, Stuart, I mean, you're doing it right now with this podcast is just ensuring that you're delivering good, good audio product. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the team we've put together. I'm fortunate to have an advisory board. That's about, you know, 10 people deep. It's a good diverse group of people that don't just tell me what I want to hear. They actually tell me all the time when I'm wrong, which is awesome. Uh, it's what you want in your advisory board. And, you know, it's good to have that sounding board. It's good to say, is this a good idea? Or I'm thinking about this and have people push back on it. And so I've tried to surround myself with media veterans, um, business veterans, retail people, um, nonprofit people, um, folks that have, have skin in the game and, and care about the success of the Mount Gazette. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because your roots in the in the ski media are pretty deep. You mentioned free ski, you're written for powder, um, and a bunch of others. What's the reaction been to your resurrection of Mountain Gazette? It, has it is there generally excitement? Is, is there some trepidation? Are other people like, "Am I? You don't know what you're getting yourself into." Like, is it a mix? What, how are people reacting as you roll this thing out? Um, from former readers writers, photographers, editors, they're really excited. Um, from the network of writers and photographers I've worked with for 15 years, they're pretty excited. Um, I haven't heard anything from most of my former employers, but I mean, I just think that I have to believe that's probably COVID related. I mean, everyone seems to be scrambling to survive and, uh, and I don't think it's like ill-intentioned, but, um, you know, I've, I've heard from, you know, Derek Taylor, who's awesome. He's, he's the guy that hired me at powder and he was trying to convince me, you know, not to buy mountain gazette. He was like, dude, why, why do you want to start a print magazine? What, what do you think? And I think after I explained to him the the model, he, he was kind of like, look, I get it. Like, this is what you, you were born to do is what you want to do. And he's been awesome. And, really encouraging and I hope he writes for us in the future. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised at, um, the reaction from advertisers as people are cutting budgets, how excited they are to have something new. Um, it's old, but it's new. It's a new look on something. I think people are excited to finally be able to invest their dollars in like a high quality publication. Um, it's not to say the other ones aren't high quality. It's just we have a very different model from what anybody else is doing. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy. I've been responding personally to every single email that people send at the, like, help at mountaingazette.com. You know, we don't outsource that. And I've probably written close to 200 emails, like personal emails, just to people that have questions. And it's it's my pleasure. I do it, I do it every Friday, and I look forward to it. I make coffee and and listen to some music. And, you know, last week I listened to the Rolling Stones and just sat there for three hours, just answering emails of people that have questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? The number one question we get is John Fahey going to be contributing and Fahey knows we've talked on the phone. We've talked on, he likes messaging on Facebook. He doesn't text. Um, he said pretty openly that, you know, he's down to write for us. And I've told him he has an open door as do all the former Gazette writers, like is an open door. You can send me 
They all have my personal email address. Um, Dick Dorworth subscribed and sent a really nice note over. Um, you know, it's been it's been really really cool to get some of these legendary outdoor writers who've reached out and just they're cheering they're cheering us on to do right by it. You know, we're not going to turn it into an annual gear guide. You know, like we're not going to. I mean, if anything, we're just going to try to up the quality of it so that, I mean, people keep these anyways. If they're going to keep them, we might as well make them last. It sounds like you have amazing momentum, Mike, and and that's in spite of uh, COVID kind of upending our world over the last four months. Uh, Last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, just because, you know, you're out in Tahoe, you're so plugged into this, and, and you're about to launch the Gazette, which focuses on the mountain town lifestyle. What do you see as the big issues in mountain towns and in skiing that you would like to give some attention to over the next few years? Um, I mean, climate change is the most obvious one. That's the, that's a direct, um, the weather up here is already extreme and I don't use that in the nineties parlance of like, it's extreme. I mean, like, (laughs) I don't know how you deal with, you know, the climate changing in a way that's, you know, currently untenable i mean covid's actually preparing us really well for what the apocalypse of climate change could be which is a really sad outlook and i don't look at that i I have hope that we will be able to conquer the climate change challenge in our lifetime we have no choice we have to um i think we need to pay a lot more attention to the people who are making a living here we do focus a lot on the newcomers and you know the techerati and you know, I've Mark Zuckerberg flies his seaplane over my house. Whenever he comes up here, he flies in a truckie and flies a seaplane over to the West Shore. Um, I don't, I don't care, man. As silly as it sounds, he probably wanted to move to Tahoe for the same reason I did. Um, so I can't hate the guy for that. But the people who do live here that are bartending and that are, you know, living in three bedroom houses with six other people and everyone has one or two dogs and like you know, they're not complaining and that's not a message on like the hardships people are facing or anything. But what I find is that I think the, I think the most challenging part of living in a mountain town is just enjoying yourself every single day and not taking the opportunities you have for granted. You know, I didn't ski out West until I was 22 years old. Um, so I spent a lot of time skiing upstate New York and loving it. And I didn't care that I wasn't skiing at Vail or Squaw Valley or Mammoth or Whistler or anywhere like that. All I cared about was that West Mountain was going to build a park that winter or that, you know, there was some good snow in the trees at Gore. And I think, you know, I find myself doing it now. Like I have the opportunity to go hike a world-class trail any day I want to, and I don't do it enough. And so during COVID I've been trying to spend more time, you know, just, you don't have to go outdoors to be rad. You can just go outdoors for your own peace of mind. And I think COVID's reminding everyone of, of these incredible freedoms that we have in mountain towns that we take for granted. And so I, I, my hope is that, you know, we can cover, um, a lot more personal experiences outdoors as opposed to like professional. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, familiar with Adrian Ballinger, you know, we have a film coming out that we've made with Eddie Bauer with him and he's climbed K2 and Everest without oxygen. And it's really, really impressive. But what I find most impressive about Adrian is that he's able to run 
a business 365 days a year and like he really cares he's a really good employer and he's a good local employer here in tahoe you know i'm not plugging anything with him but like just saying like that's that to me is more impressive than climbing everest without oxygen um because i think it's hard to run a business in a mountain town and i think if we focus on the the ground level of the people who are here like we're going to be okay and and i think that's what we should be doing like when we're visiting mountain towns you should be paying attention to like you know your bartender the person serving your coffee like who are they what why are they there and i think if you start pinging those people for information you're going to have a much richer experience in mountain towns and we're not going to have as big of a tourist problem as we have right now so yeah that's uh that's what i hope to focus on at least in this first issue well mike it, it sounds like you have no shortage of stuff to write about i cannot wait to see how you pull it off i'm really excited about it so glad you could join us and and tell us all about your vision and I'll look forward to seeing it in the fall. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been, uh, your podcast has been one of my pleasures during COVID. I've gone back and listened to a bunch of them and your recent J one podcast was one of my all time favorites. So thanks for the work you're doing too. Well, thanks so much for that, Mike. Look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Take care. That's Mike Rogie owner and editor of Mountain Gazette. He's got the vision, he's got the passion, and it sounds like he has the energy to pull this off. I cannot wait to see what he comes up with. So thank you very much for that, Mike. I know we're living in a digital world, but I do think there's still a lot of value in something tangible that you can hold on to. And I'm betting there are a whole lot of people out there who agree with me on that. Thank you all very much for listening. I think I'm going to take it easy in August, but I've got a really nice slate of interviews I'm starting to line up for the fall. To get those as soon as they're live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter for free at skiing.substack.com. Stay well, stay safe. Stuart Winchester, talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.